I want us to pray together and then we're going to get into our Bibles. Let's do that. Father in heaven, it is a great privilege to be here today. There is no question about that. The opportunity to worship with other believers is one of those things that all too often we take for granted. And Father, we're sorry for that. We repent of it. The chance to lift our voices and sing songs of praise to you is that's just such a great gift. And we get to do it on a weekly basis as we gather with your church. So Lord, thank you for giving us that gift, but thank you more than that for joining us here. And we pray that our worship has been good and pleasing to you. And that's our prayer as we move into this time of the message. We're asking that it'll be good and pleasing to you. We're going to address some hard things. Some of us are going to have our toes stepped on. But Father, we know that that's going to happen by the truth of your word. So I pray that our hearts will be open to it. I pray that we'll be taught and stretched, maybe into a new way of living. So Father, guide us as we make our way into this passage. Show us what we need to see and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the early days of the church, in fact, just as the church got started, there were some difficult things that were happening. I would call them challenges that the apostles had to face as the church was growing rapidly. In fact, you might remember that after the first New Testament sermon was preached, 3,000 people became Christians. The church was growing rapidly. Every time after that, when the gospel was preached, people were giving their lives to the Lord in droves. A lot of those people were in the city of Jerusalem, but they came from far-lying areas, communities that were a long ways away. When they came into Jerusalem and they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were cut to the heart by it and they changed their life accordingly, for a number of them, it was impossible to go home. How could they go back to a predominantly Jewish community and tell them that they had become Christian? In Jerusalem, there were enough people that they could hide in the crowds, but to go home would have put them in great jeopardy. For several of them, that might have meant even losing their lives, certainly losing their jobs, losing their families. It was a dangerous decision to make, so they remained in Jerusalem. By staying there, the apostles faced a huge challenge. They had a bunch of unemployed homeless people that they had to take care of. They had widows that had come into the area that didn't have any family to take care of them. They had become Christian, and now they were responsible for meeting all of their needs. It got very difficult. The apostles were the only leaders in the church at that time, so they were doing everything. I might illustrate it this way. When they got to church on Sunday morning because they worshiped in the New Testament church on the Lord's Day, not on the Sabbath, when they got to church on Sunday morning, the apostles unlocked the building. They went in, made sure all the chairs were straight. They made sure there was toilet paper in the bathrooms. They got communion ready to go so that people would be able to serve it and they could celebrate the Lord's Supper on Sunday. They preached the message. They taught Sunday school. They led in worship. When the service was over, they locked up the building. They had swept the foyer out. They made sure that everything was ready for the next time the building was going to be needed. During the week, because they were the only leaders in the church, they were meeting all of the spiritual needs of these thousands of people, praying with anybody that wanted to be prayed with, teaching in every opportunity that they were given. They didn't have access to the Bible at the time, so they were led by the Holy Spirit, powered by the Spirit, and they were the only ones that could do the teaching. They were visiting the sick. They were running the food pantry. They were taking care of the mission shop. They were making sure that those who had lost loved ones were taken care of. They buried the dead and they cared for the grieving. On and on and on this list went. 
they were doing everything they could possibly do, but the church was growing at such a rapid pace, they couldn't keep up with everything. And not surprisingly, folks began to grumble. Can you imagine people in a, a growing organization feeling like they were slipping through the cracks, grumbling? I mean, that's, that's hard to fathom, but that's what was taking place. And I want you to see what the apostles did as a result of it. Go with me to the book of Acts, would you? Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Dr. Luke writes, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, that's of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, I love that pattern. That's exactly the way the church is supposed to operate today. Follow what's happening. There were a group of Hellenists there that had seen their people become Christians. There were also a bunch of Hebrews there, Jews, that had seen their people become Christians. The Hellenists believed that the Jewish converts were receiving favor over them particularly where their widows were concerned. Because remember, we have all these widows in Jerusalem that can't go home. They have no family to go back to, so the church was taking care of them. And the Hellenists said, this isn't fair. The Jews are getting more than we are, or our people are being neglected all the way around. This is a bad deal. Well, the apostles under the power of the Holy Spirit said, the only solution we have is to bring some other people alongside us. We can't do it all. We can't preach, we can't teach, we can't do that whole litany of things that we've already listed and take care of the widows. So we need seven men known to be full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, men that have risen above within this new congregation. Let's choose them and we're going to turn this ministry over to them. And that's exactly what they did. And I want you to see what the Bible says happened as a result of it. And the word of God, verse 7, continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The church grew even more. They're now spreading out the responsibilities, and a direct result of that was church growth. The apostles said, we can't do it all. We need to let some other people come alongside us, and the church just exploded. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people gave their lives to Jesus Christ because the apostles said, we got to get out of the way and turn over some practical ministry. We have to make sure the widows are taken care of, so let's get these guys on board. I love that model. That's exactly the way the church is supposed to operate today. There are paradigms where the staff and the elders do everything in the church and nobody else is allowed to serve. And Most of those churches are dying. They're not growing, they're dying. And there are other paradigms where the staff and the elders have said, we don't have all the gifts necessary for the church to be all that it's supposed to be. So let's choose people known to be full of the Holy Spirit of good reputation and turn ministry over to them and get out of the way. And do you know what happens in those churches? They grow just like they did in Acts chapter 6. They grow because people are serving, they're using their giftedness. And that was the design for the church from the very beginning. So here they are just a a few weeks, maybe months 
into ministry and already people are complaining because their needs aren't being met. And folks easily landed on the subject of widows to use that as their battle cry. These poor ladies aren't being taken care of. So you might think after we find a pattern like this in Acts chapter 6 that issues like this never come up again, but they do. By the time we get to Paul's writing to Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy, Timothy is preaching. You remember this if you've been with us these past few weeks. He is preaching in the church in Ephesus, a place that is very near and dear to the apostle Paul's heart. Timothy's doing the best job that he can, but there are some people that start grumbling and he needs some help. I want to take you to 1 Timothy now, just so you can see it for yourself. In the process of that, we're going to do a little bit of speculating because the Bible allows us that freedom, particularly in passages like this. As I am reading what's going on here, we're finding at least a couple of things that Paul wants to address to the church. The first is a mutual respect issue, how Timothy and other people in the church are approaching those older than them and those younger than them. So the first thing that he addresses is mutual respect, and we'll look at that as well. But then he gets into a second issue, which is the neglecting of certain people within the church, particularly widows. So let's start with this first one, and then we'll get to the second one for the bulk of our time together, this idea of mutual respect. You might remember that Timothy was very young when he took over this ministry. Now, we don't know exactly how old he was, but he was very young. Paul would actually address that issue in chapter 4, verse 12, this way. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, at that point, we can suppose that Timothy was being questioned because he was so young. There might have been people that said, he isn't old enough, he hasn't traveled enough miles, he doesn't have enough experience to be the preacher of this church. He doesn't have everything that he needs already in his tool bag to do what needs to be done. So they might have been accusing him. Timothy was a little bit of a a depressive personality. And so you could picture him saying, well, gosh, if they don't trust me, then I have no purpose here. So Paul wrote to him and said, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. It doesn't matter that you haven't gained all of that experience yet. You have the Spirit on your side, and you are there after I have laid my hands on you. I have entrusted this post to you. Now you do it. And with that type of teaching and encouragement in mind, Timothy was emboldened to lead the church. But then we get to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it appears that maybe, just maybe, and remember we're speculating here, he didn't handle that quite right. Read with me the first two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. He starts out by telling Timothy, there is some mutual respect that needs to come into play here. Don't let them look down on you because you're young, but you remember that you owe these older people a certain element of respect. So let's put ourselves in the middle of this passage, speculatively, in the middle of this passage and see if we can make this make sense. Because you have to remember that this is a letter written to Timothy, not a random series of teachings. It is a letter. And Paul wrote this to him very specifically. First, he addressed, don't let them look down on you because you're young, but he follows that up with, but remember that there's a certain element of respect that is necessary here. So if we put ourselves in the middle of the passage, here's what I can imagine. Timothy may have just possibly, made some mistakes in his youth. Anybody else ever done anything like that? When you were young, you did some things that maybe you shouldn't have done and somebody had you correct you. I'm curious again, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, 
I've been there myself. As I speculate on this passage, here's exactly what that might have looked like. Timothy might have been leading the church, trying to carry out not only Paul's vision, but his own vision for where the ministry was going. And some older men might have come alongside him and said, hey, Timothy, I think you're headed towards a a major pitfall. Maybe you need to pull back. And Timothy said, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm the leader here. I'm the one that's powered by the Holy Spirit. I'm the one Paul laid his hands on. I don't, I don't have to listen to you. And he dismissed them because they were older. He dismissed them because they didn't have the same energy and vigor that he did and maybe didn't even share the same vision. So he just wrote them off. Young ministers have been doing that for a long time, dismissing the, the people that they needed to be listening to the most. So Paul says, hold it, Timothy, hold it. Back up here. And it's entirely possible in my realm of speculation that Paul had heard about it. These people were still in contact with him because they loved him. Maybe they sent a letter to Paul and said, you wouldn't believe what Timothy's done. He's not listening to the elders, meaning the older people in the church. He's not paying attention to what they have to say. And they've tried to warn him and he didn't pay attention to their warnings and he fell off the cliff. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers. You pay attention to these older men. You pay attention. Now that's good biblical teaching that we find other places. Keep your finger here in 1 Timothy 5, but let's go to the Old Testament book of Proverbs together. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31. Solomon wrote these words. He was the wisest man to ever live. And he penned this idea. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Isn't that great? Gray hair is a crown of glory. In chapter 30, verse 17, there's actually a warning about not paying attention to that crown. Proverbs 30, verse 17, Solomon says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Solomon's saying, don't be dismissive of those that are older than you. Not at all, Timothy, you pay attention to them. Earlier on in the book of Exodus, we would actually find this great teaching. Chapter 21, verse 17. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Not only is there pointed teaching about how we are supposed to approach those that wear the crown of glory of gray hair, there are warnings that follow it up. Pay attention to them. Pay attention. I want to speak directly to the young people in our congregation today. Let's just pick a number and say if you are under the age of 25, I want you to pay really close attention. Now, that doesn't mean that over that doesn't matter, but really, if you're under the age of 25, listen closely. You need to pay really careful attention to what Paul is saying about how you treat those people that are older than you. They have a lot to share. There's a lot of life experience that can save you from making mistakes that they have made. You surround yourself with those that are older that they might save you from falling off the edge yourself, from doing things that you're going to regret later on because they wear a crown of glory from the Lord. And that crown is actually defined by the wisdom that they have accumulated through the years. You may have a lot of knowledge and good for you, but they have wisdom. There is difference. Look at this. Knowledge is defined this way. Knowledge is information of which someone is aware. Now, because I'm kind of simple-minded, here's the way I'd say that. Knowledge is full of a lot of book learning. That's it. You understand the theories. You understand what you have been taught through the years, but you don't necessarily know the application of it yet. And there are some people much older than you that understand the application. So learn from them. 
They're a gift to you. And part of that gift comes out in the form of the wisdom that they carry with them. Wisdom is defined this way. Wisdom is the ability to make correct judgments and decisions. It is an intangible quality gained through years of experience in life. That's where wisdom comes from. Oh, every once in a while, wisdom is supernaturally given. There's no question about that. But for most people, wisdom is gained through years. So Paul tells Timothy, don't rebuke an older man. Rather, you learn from him. Don't rebuke an older woman. Rather, you learn from him. They're wearing a crown of glory, and that crown is the gray hair and the years that it exemplifies. During those days, a really interesting thing would happen. The elders, the old people of the the town, particularly the old men, would sit at the city gates. So anybody that was coming or going would have opportunity to approach them and learn from them. Ask them anything that they wanted to, and they could suck their wisdom out and use it in their life. Some of the rocks on which the elders sat are still there at the city gates of a lot of the towns throughout the course of the Holy Lands. You can see exactly where the elders spent their time, and the younger people would come and just soak up whatever they could, whatever they could learn from If they were dealing with business issues and they didn't know what to do, go talk to the elders. They had relational problems. They didn't know what to do. Go talk to the elders. If they were at a crossroads and they weren't sure which way to go, go talk to the elders because they wore a crown of wisdom. And the Bible said, value it. Well, Timothy maybe had a little trouble with that. And he forgot to respect those people that were older than him. It got him into trouble. He found himself in a place where where he had to be rebuked by Paul, corrected and put back on the right path by his mentor. Don't rebuke him respect them. Now, Paul would go on to say, don't just respect those that are older than you, respect those that are younger than you as well. There's value in the teenagers in the church. There's value in the children in the church. There are even things to be learned from the teenagers and the children. So you pay attention to them. What Paul is really teaching is that in the church, there has to be an attitude of mutual respect, a respect that gets carried out in every avenue. It's interesting to me that Timothy would not be the only one that he would instruct on that. He would actually say the same thing to Titus. Now, remember the pastoral epistles are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. They were written to these young pastors that were leading churches that Paul loved. In Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read these words. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus had to hear the same words from Paul. The older men need to teach the younger men, and the older women need to teach the the younger women. That's God's model. And the younger men need to pay attention to the older men, and the younger women need to pay attention to the older women. That's God's model. And it works. And when it gets disrupted, horrible things happen. There have been a lot of studies that have determined that horrible things happen when this pattern gets destroyed. 
or gets turned upside down. They've studied it in human behavior. They've also studied it in the animal world. And here's kind of an interesting illustration of this. A few years ago in the nation of South Africa, they had a problem with elephants overrunning their national parks. In particular, one was so overrun that they couldn't even send visitors in. So they had to figure out what to do to keep that park operating the way it was supposed to. So here's what they determined to do with their elephant problem. They decided that they would open up the season and allow people to shoot the adult elephants, and then they would capture the juvenile elephants and relocate them to other parks. So they did that very thing. They relocated these young elephants that had lost their parents. In one of the parks where they relocated a number of them, here's what they discovered happening. The young elephants in Kruger National Park, South Africa, got together like a gang of hoodlums. As they hit the the elephant teenage years, they were running amok within the confines of this park. In fact, in one year, 36 rhinoceroses were killed by this gang of young elephants. Rhinoceroses, just like this one, they were killed by the elephants. Park ranger actually watched this happen. One of these young elephants actually knocked over a full-grown rhinoceros, stomped it near to death, and when it decided to finish the job, it gored it with its tusk and killed the elephant. Well, they're watching with absolutely no idea of what they were supposed to do. And finally, one of their rangers got a fit of inspiration and said, here's what we need to do. We need to bring some examples in here for them because these young elephants have no idea what an adult elephant is supposed to do or how they are supposed to act. They're fueled by testosterone. They're fueled by their own whims and wishes, and there's nobody here to correct them. So what would happen if we bring in some adult elephants and allow them to control it? So they did. They brought in six adult bull elephants, and they turned them loose with these juveniles. You know what happened? The juveniles fell into line. They started doing what they were supposed to, and no more rhinoceroses died. They put an end to the problem because the young elephants were learning from the older elephants. Everything changed. The same thing happens in our society and with mankind. The young men are supposed to learn from the old men. The old men are supposed to teach the young men. The young women are supposed to learn from the old women, and the old women are supposed to teach the young women, and that's God's plan, and there needs to be mutual respect in the midst of it. As I was studying this this week, I was reminded of a a study from the realm of psychology that I'd seen a few years ago. It's really pretty pointed. In that study, they said that we are all capable, every individual is capable, of maintaining approximately 150 genuine social relationships. Now, they define those this way. They say that a genuine social relationship is one in which you know the other person and you know exactly what value they bring to your life. That's a genuine social relationship. I might define it this way. If you were walking through rouse hours and you saw one of your 150 sitting in the deli eating a donut, they called your name, you'd happily go up to the counter, buy a donut, and sit down and eat with them. That's a genuinely social relationship. Now, we have a lot of other relationships outside of that that don't make it into the 150. But for the most part, that's true. We can all maintain 150 genuinely social relationships. But the study goes on to say that within that 150, there's another group that they refer to as the sympathy group. The sympathy group is 10 to 15 people in your life that you know very well and you have spent a lot of time with. They're the people that when they die, you will stand at their graveside, not as a spectator, but as a true mourner. 
And they will do the same for you. 10 to 15 people. These are the folks that you are really highly invested with. Well, if that is true, there's another study that says that we should break those 10 to 15 people up into categories. And it would look just like this. A third of them would be older than you. They're the ones that you're learning from. A third would be the people that you're just doing life with. And the other third would be younger than you. They're people that you have invested in, you're mentoring, and you're teaching. That's the way it would look. Well, according to Paul's teaching to Timothy, that's the way it should look. You should have people older than you that you are learning from, people that you are doing life with, and people younger than you that you are invested in. That's God's pattern. Can you imagine what would happen in the church if every person embraced that idea? Could you imagine what would happen in society if every person embraced that idea? We'd have no more dead rhinoceroses. That's a good way of looking at it because we'd have people teaching the right things. Mutual respect would permeate every aspect of life. How cool is that? That's God's plan. We need to pay attention. Now, with all of that said and all of that groundwork laid, we're going to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and get into the next section. And I want to enlarge the teaching of this section so that we're able to apply it into more aspects of our life. So go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 3. Paul writes, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone, who has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone who does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, obviously, the teaching is very pointed about how to address the issue of widows in the church. Remember in Acts chapter 6, they had the same thing going on. But what we have is an interesting breakdown here of two groups. The widows that are over the age of 60 and those that are under the age of 60. Within that, there are subgroups. Do they have family to take care of them or are they completely on their own? Now, real quick, here's what Paul's saying. If you have a widow over the age of 60 and she has family, then let the family take care of them. If you have widows over the age of 60 and she has no family, the church needs to take care of them. They need to provide for their physical needs. They need to make sure that they are taken care of. But if they have family, the first responsibility goes to the family, 
Now, that is great societal teaching as well. If we have older people in our communities and they are a member of our family, we have responsibility to care for them. We do, as family members. God gave it to us, take care of them. That's just as as simple as it gets. But if they have no family, that's where the family of God comes together. That's where the church can shine. The church steps up to take care of those widows. And we're supposed to do it well. Now, Jesus would actually put his money where his mouth was on this type of teaching. And I'll show you why I believe that. We're going to go to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, the casket, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. Now we're going to take a little test here. When Jesus looked at this whole situation, who did he have compassion for? The mother. He didn't have compassion for the young man that had died. He had compassion for her mother. So therefore, the implication is she was over the age of 60, and this was her only remaining family, and she was going to be in a bad way. So Jesus raised him from the dead that she might be taken care of, that she might still have somebody to watch over her. His compassion was for the mother, and this was his response. Restore her family, because the church didn't exist yet. There wasn't a New Testament church yet. So God had to do this. Well, we learn that same teaching when we get to the book of 1 Timothy. If they have family, let the family take care of them. If they have no family, then church step up. But then he gets into this second group of people. That's widows under the age of 60. For the widows under the age of 60, Paul has a whole different plan in mind. Rather than their families taking care of them, rather than the church taking care of them, they need to take care of themselves. They need to provide for their own needs. If that means getting remarried, get remarried. If that means learning an occupation, learn an occupation. If that means figuring out a trade that will provide for you that is morally acceptable, then figure out that trade. Under the age of 60, they are to take care of themselves. Now, ostensibly, the teaching in 1 Timothy 5 says that they're to get remarried and bear children. But let me just ask, and I know you should never ask this question, but how many ladies do we have over the age of 50? And how many of you would like to have a child now? That's, that's kind of interesting teaching in and of itself. So maybe for those younger ladies that are still able to bear children, that command is there. But for some of those older ladies, there's a different application. You need to take care of yourself. Because anything else puts them in the realm, are you ready for this, in a modern term of entitlement. Those ladies would be saying, I lost my husband, and therefore, because my situation has changed, The church is responsible to take care of me. Society is responsible to take care of me. They're entitled because of their circumstances. Entitlement is defined by Dr. John Townsend this way. It's the person who says, I am exempt from responsibility and am owed special treatment. 
Because of the circumstances of my life, I am exempt from responsibility and I am owed special treatment. That's entitlement. Now we see it in today's world, not only in the realm of widows, but we see it with all kinds of different people that say the circumstances of my life are such that I am exempt from all responsibility and I am owed special treatment. Other people need to take care of me. The church needs to take care of me. Society needs to take care of me. Well, that is not at all what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching that if you're under the age of 60 and you're able to provide for yourself, then you need to do that. And certainly there are people that aren't. There are people that have had circumstances and situations in life that have changed so dramatically for them that they are unable to care for themselves. And that's where we're supposed to kick in. But there are others where that is not the case. They're able to take care of themselves. They have just declared that they are exempt from all responsibility and they are owed special treatment because they want to be or because they believe that their circumstances are such that they should be. When the Bible is really teaching that if you're of work and age, get out there and work. You take care of yourself. Even if you have some hurdles and some challenges to deal with, you get out there and provide for yourself. Paul would take that so far with the the Thessalonian church that he would say that if a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. That's how far Paul would take that in Thessalonica because this responsibility is still here for us, even for the widows. As your life has changed, you're facing a big challenge. You just have to figure out your way through it. Now, certainly, the church has responsibility to come alongside these widows in grief or anybody else that has had their situation change, their circumstances change. We have responsibility to be there. In the realm of grief, we have a ministry in this church that does it very well. They come alongside folks, not only in grief, but in a lot of other situations in life. We call it our Stephen ministry. They're there to help people as they make their way through some of the most difficult moments. But then at the end of that time, they're releasing them so that they are able now to do life together. It's not an ongoing entitled relationship. It's one of great value that says, we're going to help you through this season and then turn you loose. We have another ministry called the Candle Ministry that is a financial assistance ministry that does the same thing. It helps people get on their feet so that they can provide for themselves. Those are ministries of compassion that are helping people make sure that they don't get added to what Paul told Timothy to call the list. The list of people that are being cared for by the church. The list of people that are being taken care of by the believers. It ought to be the goal of everybody to stay off the list and out there doing what we are supposed to do. Paul believes that so strongly that he uses interesting terminology. Would you look at this? This is verse 6 of chapter 5. If you want to see it for yourself, you can look in your Bible or you can look up here on the screen. She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Now, isn't that an interesting term? Self-indulgent? I spent a lot of time this week exploring what that idea means. It means, very simply, that it's all about me. Because my circumstances have changed or because I want it to be, it's all about me and I want everybody else to focus on my needs. I don't want to have to do that myself. I want everybody else to look at me. That's self-indulgence. And when self-indulgence takes over in a person's life, they have lost their sense of purpose and direction. And they're chasing only their own wishes and desires at that point. Do you know where self-indulgence began? It began before time itself. This is found in Isaiah chapter 14. You don't have to turn with me, just listen. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And the Bible there is speaking of Satan. Satan believed that he was entitled to the throne of God. And in his self-indulgence, he pursued that believing that it should be his, and it cost him everything. He was thrown out of heaven and a third of the angels with him, never to get back into the presence of God because of his self-indulgence. He took that idea and turned it into sin because the very first account of sin was a self-indulgent sin. When he would tempt Eve to eat from the tree, have no regard for God's rules, eat from the tree, and you will become like God self-indulgence. It's all about me. I don't care what God has to say. I don't care about God's plan. It is all about me. That is self-indulgence. And the Bible would say that the self-indulgent person is dead even while they are living. They've lost their purpose. They've lost their place in life. They've lost a sense of meaning. They've lost a sense of direction. Paul would teach Timothy that with the widows, when they become self-indulgent like that, they get involved in slander and gossip and all kinds of different things, taking other people down with them. Look at what he says in verse 15 of chapter 5. For some have already strayed after Satan. That's why he says don't, don't put them on the list yet. They're too vulnerable to Satan. Don't put them on the list. Sin is too close. Keep them off the list so that they can do what they need to do. They can go to work. It is very interesting to me that in the realm of entitlements, when we get outside of these widows and we get into everybody else, we find the exact same teaching. That if we're not careful and we put somebody on the list, then self-indulgence is crouching at the door and they get sucked into the ways of Satan. They find themselves in a place that, that they need not be. It's really a tragic thing. Dr. John Townsend in his book, The Entitlement Cure, would actually say that there is a way to measure whether a person is really in need or whether they are flirting with the idea of self-indulgent sin. This is the way he says we do it. We evaluate their, I am responsible versus I deserve. The person that says I am responsible understands that they are responsible for making their own way in life. The person that says, I deserve, is saying that they believe that they are exempt from all responsibility and they deserve certain privileges just because of life or because of who they are. If we're talking to a person that uses the term, I deserve, over and over and over again, more than likely they're people that are trying to get on the list. If we're listening to people that are saying, I am responsible, we're listening to people that are saying, I don't want to be on the list. I want to do whatever it takes to take care of my situation. And that applies in a lot of different dimensions. It's not only in the physical and financial dimension. Entitlement applies in all kinds of different ways. So let's make some of those applications real quick. The financial and physical one is so easy, but think about some of the others. If you look at somebody else's marriage and you think, I want a marriage like that, but you have never done the work to get a good marriage, then you're not entitled to it. You have to do the work. Maybe you're a person who has said that I have sat around night after night after night alone 
and I've been waiting for somebody to call me just to invite me to go do something, but you've never picked up the phone and called anybody else. You're not entitled to have other people call you. The Bible says that if you want friends, you must show yourself friendly. That's the way it works. You're not just entitled to have people reach out to you. You have to reach out to other people. That's the way it works. Spiritually, if you want a deep relationship with God and you have looked at other people that you know walk with the Lord every day of their life and you covet their relationship with the Lord, you have to understand this. That doesn't just happen. It's not something that they accidentally fell into. They worked to get it. Oh, no question about it. Jesus did all the heavy lifting when he died on the cross and was buried and came from the grave. That was the hard part. If there was a thousand steps between us and God, he would take every one of them but the last one. But you've got to take the last one. You have to do the work to get the relationship with the Lord that you want. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that I am wanting from the Lord? If it is nothing more than salvation, well, congratulations, you might have that. But if you want to have him as the Lord of your life or you are walking intimately with him every day, then my friends, pay attention to this. It takes work. You're not just entitled to it because you're a Christian. you got to work at it. So you invest in it. You pull on your boots and you go to work. That's what Paul was telling Timothy about these widows under the age of 50. They need to pull on their boots and go to work. So do we. As we analyze the different things that we want in life, there's a point where we are required to pull on our boots and go to work. And work was God's design. Isn't that a cool thing? Listen to what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you are thinking, no, there's nothing cool about that. I'd rather rest. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Think about God's design for our lives. We were designed to work six days a week and on the seventh day rest. That was God's design. That is true not only in the realm of employment. It is true in everything else. You were designed to work for it. You're not entitled to it. You were designed to work for it. So pull on your boots and go to work. That's the way it works. Relationally, if you want to see changes in your marriage, pull on your boots and go to work. Get back to a place where you're not saying, I deserve it, but I am responsible for it. So if your husband isn't loving you the way that you think he should, stop saying, I deserve to be loved the way that I think I should and get responsible for helping him understand how to love you the way you should. Pull on your boots and go to work. Maybe you're one of those people that has been sitting around thinking, my wife doesn't love me the way she should and I deserve that because I see all these other people that have their wives treating them the way that I want my wife to treat me. Well, they probably pulled on their boots and went to work. So pull on your boots and go to work. That's the way it works. If you're at home waiting for the phone to ring, why don't you pick up yours and make somebody else's ring? You contact them. If you want friends, you must show yourself friendly. Apply it in whatever capacity you want, whatever dimension you want. It is necessary. It is necessary. Listen, it is necessary for you to get a hold of your boots, pull them on and go to work. That's where the changes come from. And if we want to change the entitled mentality within our society, that's what we have to teach. Yes, there's a place for names to be on the list. And yes, the church has responsibility there. There's no question about that. But there are also people who shouldn't have their names on the list. And we need to help them find a different course in life, a path in life that involves the pulling on of their boots and going to work. That's just the way it works. That's God's design. It's perfect. 
And it works when we apply it for the widows and for everybody else. And if Satan wants to be successful, all he has to do is disrupt that. Let me share with you an illustration of this as we close. Friday afternoon, I was driving through town in my pickup and I saw somebody behind me. It just happened to be Dean Messenbrink and he was kind of chasing me down. So I pulled over and Dean pulled over behind me and I got out of my pickup to see what was going on. Dean was wanting to show me this beautiful six by seven bull elk that he had just killed. Best part of the trophy as he told the story was the fact that he had his little daughter Mara with him and she got to experience the whole thing and he was just beaming about the fact that they were together as he got this elk. And so I was leaning over the bed of his pickup, celebrating everything with him, just thrilled that he had gotten this elk and thrilled that he had chased me down to show it to me. And other people joined us and they took a look at it. It was just gorgeous. And Dean got in his truck and left to go to the taxidermist. And I got back in my pickup to head back to the church. And I found myself a little bit discouraged, kind of kicking the dirt, thinking, I want to shoot a bull like that. I have never killed an elk, and I want to kill an elk like that. And I actually, at one point, had these thoughts going through my mind. I have lived in Libby for 14 years, and I have never killed an elk. That's no fair. I ought to be able to kill a bull like that. And then I started processing it. I realized at one point, yeah, I've killed a number of nice mule deer bucks, and I've killed a number of nice white-tailed bucks, but I've never killed this bull. Here's why. Because I haven't pulled on my boots and done the work. That's why. That's why I have not killed that bull. Now, there are other reasons for it, too, like this. Typically, when I should be out elk hunting, I'm duck hunting. So it's a little bit of my own problem. And you can take this to the bank. If you are hunting ducks, you are not going to kill an elk. <laughs> I, I am quite experienced at this now. So until I put my shotgun down and choose to quit chasing ducks and go chase the bull, I'm not going to shoot the bull. Even though I have lived here for 14 years and I have celebrated other people shooting very nice bulls and I have done all these other things, until I am willing to pull on my boots and take off my waders, I'm not going to kill the bull. And I'm not entitled to it. I'm not. There is no reason in the world that I th should think that Jared Lampton is going to go out and shoot my bull and tag it with my tag and hang it on my wall and fill my freezer. I'm not entitled to that. Jared, however, we could work a deal see what we come up with. You see, that's not my right. I don't deserve it. Until I get more interested in the bull than the drake, that's the way it is. If I want to take off my waders, pull on my boots, and head to the top of the mountain, then I might be able to have a different expectation. But as long as I have my waders on holding my shotgun, shooting at the ducks, I can't have that expectation. You see how it works? Currently, my name is on a list of non-elk slayers. <laughs> It'll stay there. It will stay there until I choose to change that. See the truth of the gospel? See the depth of the teaching of the Bible? My friends, it works in every facet of society, in every dimension. It's not just for those widows. It's for everybody. We just have to learn from it. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, I started out by saying that some of us were going to get our toes stepped on, and mine certainly are. And I know that there are some others that are a little bruised. But Father, I find myself encouraged that I'm bruised by your truth, by the Bible. I pray you help us all learn from it.
But I'm also encouraged to know that there's application to this in our spiritual life. And if we want a deep, intimate relationship with you, we can pull on our boots and go to work to find it. That begins in salvation, and it takes us all the way through until we stand face to face with you. And what an adventure that is. So, Father, this morning I'm praying for those that maybe have not taken that first step. Their boots are on, but they've not taken the first step. Lord, would you let today be the day of salvation? Praying for others, though, that have found their way into relationship with you, but they've not walked on from there. Would you take them to the top of the mountain? And show them what it's like to live with you every day, to walk every step with you. And Father, of course, we're praying for those that are struggling. Would you help them avoid the trap of the list that they might take care of themselves with your help? In Jesus' name, amen.